This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 190. We are 10 shows away from 200 shows. That is amazing, isn't it? Thank you so much to everyone who's been with me from the beginning, as well as people who've joined along the way. I know I often have friends text me and say, I've finally discovered your podcast. And now I can't stop listening. So it's really lovely when people find it at a late stage or when my friends finally realise how many incredible people I've spoken to over the years. Um, And uh, I just wanted to read out this lovely review that came through last week from Angelica. If you're listening, Angelica, thank you for this. This podcast is so incredibly informative across a range of guests and topics. I'm learning so much about moving to a low-tox life, and it's opened my eyes to so many things I never thought about, what we eat, put on our bodies, and buy. Thank you. Oh, thanks. And I've got another one here from uh, Anna Bunda. I've listened to a variety of shows, but the style of this show is genuine, caring, and informative. What a great lineup of guests. I love our guests too. And I'm going to read one more from Lerdos. Uh, Thank you again for writing this over on iTunes. Having been on a low-tox journey for a few years now, it was so refreshing to discover Alex's podcast and work. I love her attitude, thanks, and the realness of the conversations. Absolutely something for everyone in this podcast. And she's titled it Life Changing. It's funny, isn't it? Um, A lot of people talk about going low-tox and being on a low-tox journey but have no idea where the phrase came from. And I just find it wild that people then come and discover low-tox life, the origin of the phrase, something I came up with back in 2009, uh, going low-tox and doing things low-tox, choosing things low-tox. And then they find me years later. It's just amazing. I love this community. I love... Uh, the attitude. And I think uh, it's all about encouragement to do our best and to do a little better than yesterday or last year. And to be curious rather than chastising, blaming, shaming, trying to form black and white arguments of evil and good. Everything happens in between those two things. And for us to all have this beautiful energy of support and empowerment towards simply doing better and challenging ourselves to see what that might look like next when we're feeling comfortable and we've made some changes and we're ready to do something extra uh, is something I will never get sick of witnessing in this community. Uh, It certainly pans out over in the Low Tox Club. If you haven't joined us there yet, I do encourage you to check it out. Uh, You can head to lowtoxlife.com and under the explore tab, join the Low Tox Club is the very first option. Uh, It's only 49 Australian a year 
And with that, you get access to our beautiful Facebook community, 50% off all our courses, uh, and a whole bunch of other perks that we list on the Lotox Club page. So I encourage you to go over and check it out and join us there. And I uh, really love the conversations that are happening there. We're, war- we're gearing up to do our monthly boost. And this month, it's all about playing detective on the origin of something, where it's come from how it's made. So we're all picking something that we want to research and uh, reporting back in the group what we found after emailing, phoning, etc. And I think these are the sorts of things that if we do them enough times, we start to realise just how much energy has to go into ensuring we're adding something to our lives that is good for people and planet uh, and And in doing that and in realising how much more work it is to do that, you're kind of inadvertently encouraged to buy and bring in less stuff. I've seen it over the years uh, so many times playing out in our various e-course chat groups with alumni and active students and I am a firm believer in if you really focus on doing this work to figure out where something comes from, you're like, yeah, you know what? I either didn't like what I found or that is way too hard work to do with all the things I think in my head I need to buy. So I'm going to cut down what I think I need to buy. So uh, that boost is coming up in the group um, as one of the monthly activities we do in the club too. And I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, other things I need to report, just two more little things before I introduce this week's guest. Uh, We have Thrive, Raising Kids Who Love Real Food. It is a course that myself and Brenda Janschek run annually, and it is an absolute game changer for parents who find they get overwhelmed with the topic of food and their kids. They've maybe joined other courses, groups that make them feel like, what? I need to do what to my diet and my kids to be healthy? Surely there's a simpler way. Uh, Brenda and I are very much of the ilk of uh, moderation. Uh, No guilt. (laughs) Wherever you are at, you are welcome to join us in this course. And what our goal is to help you do is to obviously increase nutrient density across our meals throughout the weeks, looking at lunch boxes, looking at family meals, looking at breakfasts, and also to reduce overwhelm around uh, cooking, around nutrition and an understanding of nutrition. Uh, we look at fussiness. We look at the importance of family mealtime. We uh, also look at things like body image. And so it's a really great wide cast net at all topics that involve kids and food, as well as inviting some incredible practitioners who guide us through those topics with evidence-based research on the best ways forward and things that work when it comes to deficiencies uh, and other common health challenges uh, surrounding immunity, perhaps, Uh, psychologists on body image, self-care, self-love, so we can introduce those concepts to our kids really early on. And then, of course, just a ton of inspiration in the kitchen. We've added a couple of live classes into this year's round. 
where, well, not live, but recorded masterclasses, probably a better way for me to say that, um, where I'm going to be taking you through a masterclass on how to maximize your kitchen efforts to produce multiple things in the one effort. Uh, This is something that I learned as a bartender, having to produce 250 world-class cocktails a night myself. And while I couldn't prevent the amount of trips I needed to take to the chiropractor with that much physical one-sided work, shaky, shaky, uh, what it did teach me was prioritization and multitasking under pressure. And so a lot of parents say things like, I really want to give my kids a much um, higher standard of food and a bit more variety. But then I come to implementing and I struggle. I feel like I'm starting from scratch every day. I just don't have the skills uh, and it's it's meaning I'm stressed and flustered and then if it doesn't work out, I feel completely overwhelmed by the disappointing emotion that I receive when my kids reject things. So my masterclass is on that. And Brenda's is all about super easy ways to involve your kids with some family favorite meals in the kitchen, ways that aren't going to create more mess and (laughs) more overwhelm, but ways that as is age appropriate as they grow, um, super simple recipes that kids love to get involved in. You give them agency, that gives them more curiosity, more sense of control, and then they're feeling less the need to say yes, no, and reject food and say yuck and things that we obviously teach in Thrive. We teach you how to avoid all of that stuff happening anymore with some really strong and healthy boundaries. But that in-the-kitchen involvement gives them a bit more buy-in, which increases the likelihood of them at least tasting and then moving forward to appreciating more and more whole foods. So it is a game-changing course. If you have any issues in this space, please let us help you. It is three weeks that could potentially change your life forever, whether you're dealing with stress of cooking, whether you're dealing with the stress of fussy eating, perhaps um, nutrient deficiencies, other health conditions, uh, and even just not knowing what we should be feeding our kids. There are so many extreme diets that are recommended as the way forward these days. Uh, And I I really just can't see the evidence for extremities. Uh, I think we need to also fit in socially And while healing protocols can be incredibly important for short amounts of time, depending on the health concern, uh, for example, gluten-free, dairy-free, I eat gluten-free. Other people might see that as extreme. I do not because I've worked on my mindset. So it's always about curiosity rather than deprivation and um, discovery rather than deprivation. But I can assure you that this is very much a place that all parents from all walks of knowledge around whole foods, special diets, people on healing protocols can all meet in the middle and uh, move forward in terms of the positive psychology and the general positivity when it comes to kids and food in your uh, home. So come and join us. Uh, We've added so much fabulous content to this uh, year. And I think you will agree once you're in there and getting started with the group that it is absolutely worthwhile taking the time out to improve the food conversations and dynamic um, with your kids at home. So you can do that uh, via the show notes 
or you can head to thrivinghappykids.com forward slash thrive hyphen healthy hyphen kids forward slash and then you'll get to the registration page. We have two levels. The Thrive Essentials is uh, 149 Australian, so that's about 100 US uh, or uh, about 100 euro. And we also have the Thrive Lifetime Membership that has a lot of fabulous bonuses. So you choose what works for you. You can upgrade later if you want to treat it as a bit of a payment plan to start on Essentials and move up to the Lifetime Access. And we cannot wait to welcome the 2020 intake this Wednesday in our Thrive uh, Facebook group community. So that is all I had to tell you about uh, in terms of what's happening in the low tox community. But I'm very excited to say for the next two weeks, you can nab yourself a killer pillar pillow for yourself or your tween. Uh, And this is one heck of a pillow. I absolutely love mine and I'm devastated that while we're in an Airbnb looking for our new place in Sydney, our pillow is in, my pillow is in storage and I have just the best sleep on this thing. It is different. I will warrant you that. So the way it's designed, and it's designed by a chiropractor uh, and his wife. So chiropractor husband does all of the design to make sure we're supporting our central nervous system and our neck and correct posture while we sleep, spinal alignment, all those good things. And then Carolina, wife comes in, does the full low-tox stock take on all the proper materials that we need to be squishing our faces against overnight so there are no microplastics uh, and nothing dodgy uh, and um, beautiful cotton, organic cotton and wool are used to uh, go into this beautiful pillow. And you have these inserts that help produce Uh, additional support if you have a particular curvature in your neck. So you can have a play around and find the perfect combination for you. But what I can say is once you have one of these, it is truly one of the best pillows you could hope for. So your code is 15% off and well, sorry, that's what you get 15% off and your code is June 15 so that you can get that 15% off. The Killer Pillar website is au. Head to the website and make the most of it for the rest of June. I love mine. I can't wait to hear what you think of yours. So in today's show, we have Dr. Alan Christensen, one of my favorite integrative doctors. I've followed him for a couple of years on Instagram. He always produces fantastic lectures on his YouTube channel, on their practices website. And he is a wonderful man, incredible history, personal history that taught him so much about how he wants to show up and support others in his medical practice. He's a naturopathic physician uh, and has been through a very interesting personal journey, which I really think contributes to his compassion. You can hear the compassion in his voice when he speaks. And I find him an incredibly calming, measured, uh, very well-researched doctor and uh, is a good friend of one of your favourite show guests, Dr. Carrie Jones, as well. They're part of a cohort of doctors who get together and look at uh, the latest research intermittently to ensure everybody is 
practicing with the most up-to-date information, uh, just to give you an idea of the network uh, that they have uh, and the caliber of that network. So one topic that I focus with Dr. Christensen on today is metabolism, because he did a lot of research on metabolism and created something called the Metabolism Reset Diet. Uh, it is a really powerful diet and has a lot of research behind it. And he shares some really interesting research in today's show around the metabolism, uh, the thyroid, iodine, and how carbohydrate intake doesn't necessarily play as big a role on uh, sugar spikes in the blood as was originally thought, similar to cholesterol and cholesterol levels in the blood. And I was very interested in that. So um, I have followed up with uh, Alan to send us through that research so we can include it in the show notes. But I want to wish you a wonderful journey through this uh, interview today. And I have written up, well, I haven't personally written it, Alan sent it to us, but I've included Alan's personal story in our show notes where he talks about everything from his adoption to having cerebral palsy as a child to being told he wasn't going to be able to run, uh, right through to being overweight as a tween and how he struggled with that and yet overcame things and started to really put two and two together for his own uh, health and gain a sense of empowerment around what he did for himself and his health and uh, and, and all sorts of other things. So um, it's really uh, quite a journey he's been on. And as I said at the start of the intro, I truly believe it's why uh, or, or at least in a great part, why he's such a, ca- a compassionate physician today. Enjoy this chat with Alan. I can't wait to hear your f- feedback and comments on socials, and I hope uh, you got as much out of it as I did. Thanks, guys. Hello, Alan. How are you? Hey, Alex. I'm doing real well. Thank you. That's good. Uh, I'm very excited about this conversation. I think. Uh, I have a lot of women in my community who are in their 40s uh, and and people in different age brackets as well who feel like they can't be on the same team as they, their metabolism or their husband does like five sit-ups and they've got a six-pack and <laughs> they're like, why, why? Uh, and I feel like today we may just get some answers for the people who constantly feel like they're battling against their metabolism, how we can become friends. Uh, but I would love to hear a little bit about your journey for people who haven't come across your work before. What made you decide on becoming a naturopathic physician uh, in your medical career? Yeah, yeah, great question. I guess the first thought was, um, you know, I went into medicine for selfish purposes. <laughs> I, I struggled with my own health pretty bad as a child. I had some complications from cerebral palsy and I was pretty obese kid, um, very uncoordinated and like the least sporty kid you could imagine. Uh, and, you know, and I had this wild experience to where I was always able to read and figure things out pretty well. And I turned that towards my own health. And I just had this transformation occur. And it was something that, you know, the doctors that I worked with seemed to mean well, but what they were doing wasn't helping. And so, yeah, I realized how much your health affects your quality of life and how others see you and your enjoyment in the world and how information can shift your health and it might not come from the sources you expect. So that was one early along. I knew that I wanted to 
keep using those skills and share those things and help others in those ways because it was so profound for me. And I was going to go into just conventional medicine. I didn't really know of any other options. And I was pretty close to that. But some doctors that were mentoring me and speaking to me, they said, look, kid, you know, you can, I understand you want to really use nutrition, talk about natural medicine, but you can't do that. <laughs> you know, you know, we have uh, standards of practice. We have medical boards. There's things that are in place. And even if you mean well and you help people, you can lose your license. You can be you know, sanctioned for that. And uh, I was just shocked. I, had, I just couldn't conceive of the fact that I could be doing something that was of service and have that be perceived badly. Like, wow. Uh, yeah, so I learned about the, the naturopathic profession. And it was just what I was looking for. You know, I wanted to have the benefits of technological modern medicine but I wanted to really address that primarily through lifestyle and diet as much as possible. And I wanted to be part of a community that supported me for doing so. So, so yeah, that's, that's how that fell into place. Yeah. Very logical falling into place as well. And, and such a shame that one would be penalized for helping a patient <laughs> in any way that they can be helped that is safe. It's first do no harm, right? Yeah. It's so hard when things that seem reasonable just don't fit policy. That's just, that still, it still baffles me. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's how we're feeling about uh, rights for people of color right now. Right. Just like, how are we still having this fight discussion, whatever it's crazy. So here's hoping that we're in the process of stripping ourselves bare so that we've learned some hard truths and start to make friends with people who are different than us and think differently to us from the medical profession through to race, it would be beautiful to see. Um, <laughs> here, here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm interested in, uh, in how, when we think of endocrinology, because that's an area that you're particularly passionate about and your clinic specializes in, how does naturopathic integrative endocrinology look different from someone visiting an allopathic endocrinologist? Yeah, so a lot of ways there's there's not there's not differences. We think about the same conditions that can occur and many diagnostic criteria, diagnostic methods, and we're certainly aware of conventional treatments and use them when they're appropriate. But the thought is always, you know, why do things happen and what are the what are the core drivers? And it seems like I don't know, medicine made a lot of headway during the times of infectious disease being more prevalent. It did quite well against that. But now we know that lifestyle is such a big part of it. You know, our, our movement, our mindset, our, our, our diet, you know, these are the biggest drivers of our health. And conventional medicine has, I think it's many in it would say that they've underappreciated the relevance of those things. So we really focus on those as not just things to address offhandedly, but the things to really focus on. And that's, that's the exciting part. You know, when you really understand what, out of someone's daily habits they can do to give rise to their recovery, then the body just has its amazing capacity to heal when it's given the right circumstances. So that's a big difference. We focus less upon, you know, drug therapy uh, and more so on what can be corrective in terms of lifestyle, mindset, and movement, you know, sleep, sleep hygiene, uh, diet therapy, and, you know, appropriate helping the body's chemistry optimize. So those are the big differences. Mm, amazing. And I'd love to um, start looking at a particular aspect of the uh, endocrinology, which is the metabolism. 
and uh, your book, The Metabolism Reset Diet. I um, confess I have not finished it yet, but I have started. It's very good. <laughs> and, uh, and it's one that I was particularly curious about on a personal medical journey recovering from SIRS. Uh, and for people out there who don't know that acronym, it's chronic inflammatory response syndrome. I lived in a water damaged building unknowingly for unfortunately eight years. And, oh gosh, if I could turn back time as the share song goes, I believe me, I would. Uh, but you know, the lesson has been learned and fortunately I've been able to help a lot of people uncover some of the uh, environmental causes for their, uh, no one can explain it illnesses, uh, which mm. has been extremely um, comforting in my healing process to think, well, at least I was able to help a lot of people. Um, but something that I have noticed, uh, and I don't know whether it's because it's kicked in at an age where you become perimenopausal, which is me, nearly 45, but my metabolism is just not acting like my friend right now, which was, uh, um, and, and it's bizarre, you know, I'm putting on weight in areas I've never put on weight in my life, cannot lose a kilo to save myself. So I feel like, uh, you know, in talking with my community about this, there are so many people who feel the same way at my age. And that was one of the reasons, not just for selfish reasons, that I wanted to have you on because the, sh- the sharing you do around this topic is so generous and people can just jump onto your uh, YouTubes that you've recorded on your website, um, which I would encourage everybody to do. But to get a bit of um, Metabolism 101, I think, would be a really great place for us to start and then to have a look at some of the reasons things go out of whack and, and what we might be able to do. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. So the 101, basically being alive is how well we can make uh, fuel into energy. You know, the extent to which we can do that, we can move about, we can have distinct thoughts, we can power our muscular system and and everything depends upon that. That's basically what metabolism is, is taking some substrate, some version of fuel, and then making useful cellular energy out of that. And everyone can do that, but there's a certain amount of flexibility that we can have more or less of. And here's what I mean by that. So we never, we never get the amount of fuel we need in a given day for that day. It's never precise. You know, we're always eating. Further than that, we're using fuel constantly. You and I are talking right now. We're using energy by our, our brains use like a quarter of our body's energy, which is bizarre because they're not that big in their physical mass. But yeah, so we're using fuel at this moment. And yet you're not eating, I'm not eating, you know, so we have to be able to draw from our stores. So there's how well we can take fuel and put that away, but not lock it away. (laughs) (laughs) There's the key. Yeah. (laughs) And then how well do we retrieve that? Yeah. And those things go together. So we have to retrieve energy in the moment. And if we can't do that well, the two sides of the coin, one of which is, well, we can't get energy. We're tired. We have brain fog. We don't feel physically motivated to do physical things. But the other side of that is that fuel is stuck. And then that's, that's the weight that just doesn't seem to make sense. It came from nowhere. It won't go away. So yeah, when you've got a flexible metabolism, you can have less food on one day, more food than another day, and it all evens out. You know, your energy stays steady and your weight stays reasonable. But the more inflexible metabolism gets, the more that, yeah, you're always on this tightrope of trying to get not too much food, not too little food, and it never really works out. 
Mm, so yeah, so, like it's like the fat is stuck in a time capsule. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't unlock it. <laughs> so how do we get flexibility then? How does that actually? What's the process? Well, so the story moves into the liver. It turns out, and most things that we use constantly but don't consume constantly are stored in our livers. So like all the vitamins, even like brain chemicals, uh, many hormones that are made elsewhere, your liver storing all this stuff. And it's almost like, you know, we, we left the oceans a long time back. When we were in the oceans, we just bathed in whatever we needed. You know, we had to we would move to where the water was better. But so, so yeah, we left that and we made like a little aquarium, so to speak. And the liver is the main storage and the main filter. So yeah, we're holding on to things we need later. And that also includes our energy. So like right now, we're drawing upon stored energy that's in our liver, our muscles. But yeah, the liver is the main hub for that. And it keeps energy in two types. Just think about this like if you've been, I don't know, outdoors and you're camping and you, you, burn, a, you burn a log. You know, you've got to have this thing that is hot for a long time, but you, it doesn't ignite that easily, right? So you've got like kindling and you've got like logs. And so in your liver, we think about triglycerides and glycogen. And triglycerides, that's, that's the logs. You know, these are stored molecules of energy that yield a lot of energy and they can yield it gradually and very steadily, but they've got to be ignited. And so you need this chemical process that involves glycogen to get them going. And we now know that we often get to where we've got an excess of triglyceride, but not enough glycogen to really ignite that. So the trick is how we switch that ratio back again and get our glycogen back and then break down some triglyceride. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, Something that I was looking at when I was researching your book and starting to get into it was the recent research, well, not so recent now, a few years old now, um, that high blood sugar is actually caused by damage to not just the liver, but also the pancreas, um, which is why some people really struggle. So how do we start to look at these organs and give them more TLC in the naturopathic sense? Yeah, so that was that was shocking stuff. You know, we thought in the past that the sugar in your bloodstream was just, you know, the resultant of your dietary carbohydrate. Yeah, and exactly. For sure. Like we were we would be taught that simple sugar would make this big spike, but then even slower burning types of carbohydrate would still convert to sugar in the bloodstream. That's been like dogma. Well, they've elevated the technology in which they can now differentiate sugar in your blood, whether you made that or whether you ate that. Hmm. <laughs> and it turns out that most of us, and this is even worse for those who are diabetic, but yeah, most of us, about 80% of the sugar in our blood, we made it. It didn't come from our diet at all. So what we eat and how our liver's health is determines how much glucose we pour into the bloodstream. So and similar to the cholesterol have, realization. That's an awesome analogy. Yeah. So cholesterol, way back when we thought that if you ate eggs, you would have high cholesterol because yeah. eggs had cholesterol. And so too, during some of the most carb phobic years, we thought that if you ate carbs, you would have high blood sugar because carbs can make into sugar. And like, mm. yeah, we know in exactly both those cases, the bulk of it is what we're making. It's not just like falling in straight through our gut into our blood. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Gosh. So, so what's the impact there? Like now that you know this, uh, how has that changed how you treat people? Well, you know, our, our big focus has been thyroid disease all along. And one of the main symptoms with that is it's even worse for weight gain. It's easier to gain it and harder to lose it. And 
about 20% of people, just by correcting their thyroid levels, their weight goes back to where they wanted it. And that's beautiful when it happens. It's the exception. You know, even if the thyroid did cause the weight to come on, fixing it doesn't always reverse the weight. So I was always struggling with what's going to be helpful for people. And yeah, that was a big part of my story too. And I've had once or twice as an adult where I wasn't doing as good of a job on the things that I need to, and my weight's just shot right back up again. So I'm always key to watch that research. And so many things, you know, they seem like this is the new magic solution, but then when they drill deep on it, well, yeah, they just ate a little less and then it didn't last. You know, it was really, yeah, it's so common. So what we've seen is that it comes down to not just how can you drop a few pounds, but how can you reset your metabolism? How can you get it to where you've got that leeway back again? And as we're learning more about fatty liver and that triglycerides getting stuck, that started being the key to some solutions. So some of the answers were uh, realizing that almost any version of fuel can add to the triglyceride burden. So yeah, carbs, fats, even ketones, when you burn them down, they're all the same thing. They're all oxaloacetate. They're, they're not one different from the other at that level of fuel. So the thing is, yeah, so how do we burn triglyceride but raise glycogen? And I realized that it's something that you can't really, you can't live your life in weight loss mode. You know, it's, it's inherently stressful. It's inherently unnatural. And there are ways in which the body does fight against that. Mm, so, and it's like so yeah, you can't live is, your life in marathon mode. It's wonderful <laughs> to run a marathon if you've got a goal and you're, you're doing it. But Are you a runner? Do that. No, I'm not a runner. Uh, I know okay. you are. Um, I'm a tennis player. Um, but I couldn't play tennis like 24-7. That's just not possible. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> no, great analogy, yeah. So, so yeah, the thought was, how do you really, what does the liver need? You know, what are the essential things the liver needs? How can you provide that while you're lowering the total fuel intake? That's, that's the gist of it. And then how long can you do that in a way to where it's helpful? And then when is it time to give that a break? So those are the main questions that I asked kind of going into this. And it, it turned out that the liver really needs certain essential amino acids. It's important for it to get some kinds of fibers like resistant starch. There's a lot of great phytonutrients from plants that help it work well. And then there's the fuel side, carbs, fats, ketones, collectively fuel. So how low can you go without it being a problem? And how long can you go? And it's somewhere around four weeks. Um, some data suggests a little longer, but I want to be conservative. So we do an intensive for four weeks, supplying the liver with the nutrients it needs, the protein that it needs, lots of good foods with fiber and plant extracts. And then also, I thought a lot about the behavioral sides of it. So when someone can have successful weight loss, you know, which elements work better than others? And it turns out that there's this idea called decision fatigue. And the more things you decide, the, the worse you can make decisions. So they've had a lot of research around the idea of meal replacement to where for a couple of your meals, you have something that's either very simple or pre-made, and then you only really have one meal to sort out. And so you've got more, more willpower to work with. So I use that, and also that was helpful format for providing good protein with low fuel. So yeah, so we do a shake for breakfast and lunch, and there's lots of recipes. You can do that in a variety of ways. And you do a good dinner with real simple foods per some parameters, and you do that for four weeks. And then, yeah, some people have goals of a few inches, a few pounds. They get there, they're great. Others have a little further they want to go. So then we ask them to 
stop for at least a couple of weeks and do more normal, healthy things and then repeat the cycle. And the part that always excites me the most is when someone says, yeah, I did this six months ago and I've always eaten well, but it didn't really work for me. My weight didn't budge. And now I can still eat reasonably well like I used to. And it's different. Now I still maintain my weight and it works in ways that it didn't before. So that's, that's like the ultimate outcome. Wow. Fantastic. And do you feel like um, the replacement shake for a set amount of time helps people? Because I feel like with all these TV shows and all the cooking chefs and, you know, gourmet, 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 and all the recipes online, do you feel like that sometimes helps with a psychological addiction to preparing lavish things and creating from recipes just to kind of literally reset our expectation of what meals need to be like, look like, the amount of treats we need to eat and prepare for our families. I feel like there's kind of an obsession with food being this ultra amazing experience every single day. But when I think about being a kid, you know, it was ultra amazing to go to Sizzler for my birthday. And <laughs> other times it was just meat and three veg. <laughs> and that was, and, but that wasn't boring per se. It was lovely to connect with my family every night and talk about school. I, I just wonder whether, um, you know, we poo-poo meal replacements because it's all got to come from Whole Foods. But for some people, if there's been maybe an, uh, an over addiction to the amazingness of meals, maybe it could actually be really useful on that plan that's as well. A, that's a great point. I've not thought of that before, but I think you're right. I think my my experience growing up was like yours. We just we ate what mom cooked, and it was it was all we loved it. But it was never like this big elaborate thing. It wasn't complicated. And then the other part of it is uh, just just the just the ratios. It's kind of tricky to get. So when you lower your food intake, your body still has a need for protein, and if you don't get that, you'll lose a lot of, you'll lose more muscle mass than you lose fat. And that's where someone loses weight, but they don't see their inches change. And that's, that's super common. Their waist doesn't budge, but they drop a lot of pounds on the scale. And that means they lost muscle tissue. And we know that when they, when they do eat again, which they have to, they're going to be worse off. They're going to have a worse metabolic rate. So to get enough protein to keep your muscles sustained while you're consuming less fuel, that is tricky to do because there's not a lot of foods that are that dense in protein whilst being low in carbohydrate and fat. So that's a great perk about that for that time frame. But yeah, many people prefer focusing on whole foods long term. That's awesome. No drawbacks about that. This is really a short term thing to have some change and then let you work better afterward. Mm. And when we talk about food, I mean, I think a lot of people are still confused about what works and what is good food to eat. And I always try to discourage people from good, evil, and to think more bio-individually, like how did you feel after that meal and what works for you and what works for you at that time of your life as well. It's so uh, individual and specific sometimes. We really need to tune in. But I'm keen to hear your take on that because I was interested to see actually that you journal your food still today. I'm like, oh my gosh, if one of the best <laughs> endocrinologist NDs is still journaling his food, what hope do we have? Um, but I would love to hear the reasoning behind that and then how you've arrived at what works best for you and how you help patients to do the same. So it's actually quite a few things to unpack, but I think it'd be really interesting. No, great question. And yeah, I do. I do still log. Um, I've got lunch written down. And um, I started that when I was just 
in my own weight loss journey when I was about 12, and now I do that in high-tech ways. And I don't know, I've thought a lot about intuitive eating, and I can intuitive eat and do reasonably well, but I'm not at, I'm not at my best. I, I never end up being at my best. And then I, I, I do, I do, yeah, I, I'm marathon these days. And this is so bizarre, but the more I train, the harder of a time I have managing my weight. I, I swear, there's no no debate about that. Wow, yeah, could that a, be cortisol, a, like the stress of long distance running on the body? Um, well, it, it's always some level of thermodynamics, you know. There's and there's been a lot of research about uh, appetite and overfeeding per exercise. Now, if I exercise uh, 20, 30 minutes a day, at moderate intensity, I have no problem at all with a, a reasonable appetite. But when I train hard, you know, most days are many hours, you know, I, then the pitfall is if I don't overfuel, if I eat like a reasonable amount of food, I'll collapse. You know, I, I'll have no energy for tomorrow and my weight will plummet. I'll feel awful. So I've got to eat more, but my level of intuitive eating is more than is appropriate. There's just no way around that. And there's been a lot of research saying that many people, they will overcompensate. The threshold for women seems to be about... 400 calories of exercise per day. Further that many get above that, the more they will overfuel. You know, you burn 600 and you want 800. And so yeah, I, I fall in that camp. So when I when I train hard, I just I do a lot of math. And it's uh, the funny thing is that if I were to refuel the calories I burned, I would gain weight. So the math that works out is I take my workout and I chop the number of minutes that I spend in half, and then I log that and I refuel about that much. Then it works out, but and this is trial and error. So yeah, there's there's that side of it. And the other part was about foods overall, and you know, foods being good and bad. I love the comments you made, and completely would like to echo those. You know, I've also been through a lot of iterations in my life, and I've seen a lot of patients go through this, to where you get highly restrictive. You know, we hear about all these bad foods, and it seems like it almost becomes like a moral thing. And that exactly, we're, yeah. Yeah, the more we cut out, the more virtuous people we are or something. And, mm. and it's tough. I've seen so many wreck their health that way. Well, and food I've, has become faith in that sense. You know, as, as people leave the churches, they head to the diets. And it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's sad because you see a lot of shame, a lot of, oh, there's something wrong with me because this didn't work. I need to be a better person. And, um, and I just don't think we need to be that serious and chastise ourselves. This is well, and two yeah. two parts to that. So one of which is a healthy diet does so much for us, and there are many conditions, many diseases that can emerge we don't have answers for, and they're probably not caused by diet. And they, it's not our fault. It wasn't always a moral lapse of dietary discretion that gave rise to things going wrong. And the other side to that is. We've had this game in, I don't know, in the health expert space to where if you can uncover some ingredient that was in a food that everyone thought was healthy, that you can say, oh no, gotcha, that's really dangerous, that gets traction, you know, that, that goes viral. And so many have played that game that there's nothing safe anymore. You know, any food you think of, there's some version of a gotcha out there, how that food really is sinister. And the funny way that has a scientific credibility behind it is this concept called hormesis. So foods like plant foods, I just happen to have some, some turmeric here. So there's alkaloids in, in turmeric that if you could concentrate, they would be lethal. But in the amount we find in foods, they, they're poisonous just enough to where our bodies compensate. Your liver says, huh, there's some icky stuff here. 
I better beef myself up and get ready for battle, right? And it ends up being helpful. You know, we detoxify better from that. So there are a lot of things that are in just minuscule amounts that they would be poisons were they concentrated. But we've adapted with our food to where a variety of whole foods, lots of great plants, you know, those things end up being net positive for us. But what'll happen is someone will look at that chemical out of context and say, oh yeah, here's a study to where if you pour this thing pure onto a Petri dish, it will kill all the cells. Sure enough, we can't eat that. No, <laughs> yes, it is poisonous. Yes, that is toxic in that context. But the amounts that we end up getting in our diet are still toxic, but they're in a useful degree. Our bodies come back stronger from that. So yeah, those things have made horrible levels of just food phobia for people. Mm, and more and more confusing. And I think uh, something that I try to do in our uh, courses that help people uh, discover the food system, uh, eat, shop better, etc. cetera, uh, I always talk about like little mini alarm bells if you're in a phase of life where you've tried everything and it doesn't work. Maybe have a look at these. But these are not evil foods. Uh, and this is not an evil group of things like histamine-containing foods or lectin-containing foods. It's good to have on the radar if you're going through a particularly tricky time and you're thinking, God, that inflammation's just still there. What could I just reduce for a little while uh, until the bucket kind of empties a bit? And um, rather than thinking, oh, eggplant, bad, and for your entire life, you stay away from yeah. it. Mm. And a thought too is that anything like that you can think of, there are people to where they don't have those effects. You know, so it's, and there probably were times in, in your life to where you didn't have those effects. So if, if it has to be avoided short term, so be it. But know that you weren't always like that. Others aren't like that. There's something else wrong. And what else is that thing that's wrong? What else is make it to where you'd have lost a tolerance for a broad range of foods and how can you regain that again so that's mm. that's an important question to ask yeah so given we've arrived there i think it's uh, a great tangent to go on just for a little second uh what about those people that feel like they can't eat anything without having some kind of reaction how do you address that as a doctor you know i've seen some examples of that those those that have just tried everything they they come out to see doctors like myself so we've had patients and i'm not exaggerating who could consume nothing other than hippopotamus meat and you actually can order that that is that is it, there's a lot of shipping it's not cost effective but but no there are people to where they've got themselves into corners and there's there's two facets to that so one of which is physiological you know the fewer foods you eat the fewer foods you become tolerant of so here's a silly example to make a point. If someone were raw food vegan for 10 years and they went down the road to the all-you-can-eat pork barbecue buffet and they had like three plates, they're going to have a bellyache, right? <laughs> doesn't mean they've got some odd pork intolerance. It might not be the best food for them, but it doesn't mean they've got some reaction to it that's, that's unique. It's just that their body hasn't been exposed to that for so long. So in one sense, the fewer foods we eat, the fewer foods we tolerate. You know, we're omnivores. There's almost nothing that you could give us that we couldn't sustain ourselves from. And there's almost nothing that you couldn't take away from us that we couldn't live without. But those changes occurred slowly in our past. We never abruptly had a lot of new foods. We never abruptly lost a lot of foods. So yeah, so we can adapt, but the more things we cut out, the more that we have a shift in the enzymes we produce and how we make stomach acid and how our flora adapts, all these things adapt to fewer foods. And now you add more foods back in, 
And this is kind of a pitfall if someone can do a elimination reintroduction diet. They're, they're helpful tools, but there is a way in which when you eat few foods for a while, you react to foods in ways you might not if you have them often. So yeah, so people can have very real reactions, but they might not occur in other contexts. And then of course, there are also psychological sides to this. You know, our minds are so powerful and having, having concern, having fear, that can change our body's chemistry in ways way beyond almost any other factor. You know, our fight or flight systems, you mentioned cortisol, you know, our immune system can be shut down by that. And so much of our gut can be altered just by a heightened stress response. And I can't imagine a worse setup than someone being fearful of the very sustenance they need to live. And so of course that can amplify, that can be very real symptoms. They can progress from a narrower diet to where they get further and further. And somewhere along the way, the fear of these symptoms, of real symptoms, can amplify all of it further. So the reversing it, there's not a uh, magic bullet per se, but the general process is understanding as much as one can about the current state of their digestive chemistry and helping to gently reverse that. And oftentimes just small steps, like one small example, people can have reactions to raffinose, which is a trisaccharide found only in legumes. And it turns out that that has specific effects upon some strains of bifidobacter that are very positive. But if you're lacking in certain strains of bifidobacter, you can't process raffinose that well. So the amount you would commonly consume in the diet can be far too much. And so some people do great if they do, no joke, like a teaspoon of lentils per day for two weeks. Mm. And then afterwards, they've inoculated their flora. They've gotten some more tolerance of that. Now they can start expanding into more typical dietary quantities. Mm. So yeah, so part of it is just helping to reverse any ways that are measurable and reversible that the gut has become compromised and then getting a strategy on how to phase back in foods in certain sequences in a delicate enough process. Mm. I, I remember uh, for about a year thinking, oh my gosh, you know, it's the like legumes making me gassy or whatever. And so I cut them out. And I remember having a stool test actually. And I had, after this year of no legumes at all, and um, I come from a half French Mauritian background, so lots of Indian food, beautiful curries and legumes. So I really missed them too. I was like, gosh, you know, and then I tried to have some and my gut was destroyed by just this one simple helping. My naturopath got me to take a stool test and I had very little evidence of any bifidobacteria. I hadn't been feeding yeah. those little guys. Yeah. And um, just as you said, it was like a 12-step process to get just <laughs> back on slowly, slowly. And uh, now yeah. they're a regular part of our family's diet again. And I just That's love awesome. them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's really cool. But I mean, you know, think about the amount of people that think, oh, that food is bad for me or evil because of a reaction. And we narrow, narrow, narrow. And to the point where you say, as you say, perfectly, it becomes almost psychological, becomes a player in there. And that's really unfortunate. So mm -hmm. let this be an exciting new chapter for anyone out there who has felt like food is the enemy uh, because of restriction. Um, you know, get curious and see how you might develop that sort of more gentle, loving, accepting uh, view of all the foods that are whole foods and, uh, 
And, and, and again, their foods really do have poisons in them. Those mm. are valid points. But by mm. and large, when your body works normally and you're consuming them in dietary amounts, those poisons are good for us. And we've figured out over millennia which foods are useful and which ones are not. <laughs> it sounds like in the small amounts that you describe them to be in the food, that they're almost a constant... Um, a, a workout for our organs. That's an awesome analogy. Awesome yeah. analogy. Perfect yeah. one. Yeah. It's, cool. it's, it's like exercise. It's a nice way to reframe it, I think, for people. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Something I want to know about the metabolism is how is it different for men and women? Yeah. Well, in general, the, the biggest variables apart from disease states that affect your metabolism is, is your, your body composition. So just lean mass to fat mass. And yeah, there's a big gender difference that way. Uh, the just luck of the draw that androgenic hormones, so testosterone, DHEA, growth hormone, they, they cause insulin to be more sensitized to muscle mass than fat mass. So you talked about like uh, weight gain with exercise and I mentioned just thermodynamics. So yeah, if we consume, this is funny because the calorie model, it's not untrue, but it's not always useful. You know, So it's true in that if we ingest a certain amount of stuff, we burn it or store it, but we can store it in very different places and that has very different results. So if we've got a, if we've got a more androgenic body makeup, then there's more direction of fuel to get sent into muscle tissue. So that same fuel balance in someone with less androgenic makeup, they could have that same fuel go into visceral fat or subcutaneous fat. And then over time, that metabolically active muscle tissue can be raising the basal metabolic rate, whereas fat tissue can be doing having more opposite effects. So that, that's, one, that's one big gender difference. And there's also just the response of estrogen receptors to certain parts of the body. And this is especially like you know, thighs and thighs and butt and breast tissue. Funny thing is that those are all examples of subcutaneous fat, you know, fat below the skin. And that type of fat, uh, you know, people may have more than they wish, but there's really no health ramifications. So there's the talk about the fat. And this is bizarre too. You hear about fat around the organs, the, the deadly visceral fat. We now know that organ fat is the fat around the organs is protective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, so let's just throw that out the window. How did we find that out? Well, so what happens is that I imagine that like overflowing buckets, like one bucket overflows to the next. You're seeing like they've got, I don't know. I've seen these fountains people can have in their yard to where a top little bucket bowl fills that spills to a bowl, yes. so on and so on. So I was actually is, thinking of a champagne tower at a reception. Oh, perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah I went straight for the champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how our body manages fuel. We, we consume fats, carbs, ketones. We make those into oxaloacetate. And we've got various uh, glasses we put those in. And when one glass fills, it goes to the next glass. And by and large, the first couple of glasses are pretty safe. But after a certain number of overflows, the final point would be fuel getting jammed inside of a cell and inside of mitochondria when there's not really room for it, like putting, putting the gas tanks already full, right? So that's the most lethal reaction that happens. And before that, fuel builds up in the bloodstream, the muscle tissue, the subcutaneous fat, the fat below the skin. And then after that, we can get some in the fat around the organs. The next step is fat inside the organs. So fat inside the liver and the pancreas. Now we're getting pretty dangerous. And to be really precise, that fat can be inside the cells or between the cells. There's like two more little buckets. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So yeah, the between the cells is where it's really toxic. In fact, I'm looking around. Um, Here's a 
here's a little SD card I just pulled from the camera. Mm-hmm. That's probably about, I'm guessing that's about four grams in weight. So two grams of fat inside the pancreas is a difference between being diabetic and non-diabetic. So, wow. Yeah, if you can drop two grams of fat out of your pancreas, you're just non-diabetic. You've totally changed your body. That's incredible. So that, that's how powerful intra-organ fat is. And so then past that point, there's a few more champagne glasses before we get to the mitochondria. But <laughs> the, next, the next main one's the bloodstream. So when you can't jam stuff in there anymore, now those fuels, they're staying in the blood. And they're there in the form of glucose, triglycerides, and cholesterol. So, so yeah, and when, when, your, when your blood can't carry anymore, then they go into the mitochondria. So kind of a bizarre thing, but people who gain weight, some get sick, they get diabetes and heart disease, and some do not. And those that do a really good job making subcutaneous fat, they're less apt to get diabetes and heart disease because they're keeping all the extra fuel in more harmless glasses, right? But when those pockets overflow, we're getting it into where it starts getting into the organs. So that, that's the whole cycle. Right. And so, I mean, I know if my community was here with me right now, they'd be like, so ask him how to get that two grams of fat out of the pancreas. <laughs> how do we so get, so the thing is, how do we shift that fat that deeply? So the metabolism reset diet, its first iterations were made for reversing diabetes. And that's what we did with it. And we've had countless, countless cases to where there's one marker called the A1C, which is one of the more solid markers of blood sugar regulation. It's about a three-month average of how much glucose is stuck on the red blood cells. And some is healthy. Healthy people, are their, their blood cells are like 4 to 5% glucose. But when you get above 6.4, we call that diabetes. And diabetics can be 7, 8, 12, 13. They can be way up there. And the further they are high, the more dangers they have. And what we learned was that we developed this diet as a response to one that was done in research that the one in research, they only used liquid calories and they only gave 600 calories a day. And it was far from whole food. It was literally like corn syrup and corn oil. I know it's not icky stuff, but they would see measurable by imaging CT scans. You could see the pancreas reverse diabetes in like four to six weeks. And so I saw these papers and yeah, I said, I was blown away and I thought, well, what if we actually had some nourishment in that? And what if, you know, you had a meal here and there and a little bit longer perhaps? And so that, that was the first inspiration. But we've become very confident taking people who are on multiple medications, badly controlled diabetic, and we'll say, look, you start on this and do this exactly as this is laid out starting tomorrow. And starting tomorrow, you take no more medication. So you stop medication tomorrow because otherwise your blood sugar is going to be way too low. Mm. Yeah, you stop your medicine tomorrow and we're going to test your blood in six weeks and you're no longer going to be diabetic. You can be off medication and not diabetic. And this and is type and, 2 diabetes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Thank you for that distinction. This is type 2. Even being into it for a decade, even with A1C scores a dozen or higher, we've got tons and tons of case reports like that. So that's where we were first using this. But along the way, all the staff would hear people say, yeah, I'm happy my blood sugar is down. Sure, that's great but now I'm a size four. That's incredible. They're like, <laughs> cool, that's good. And so, so yeah. our staff would, would try that. They say, look, I've got a wedding coming up and can I do this thing? Like, well, I don't see why not. So they'd be like, yeah, this worked well. I lost these inches. I feel better. And it's like, well, why not? Why not for others who are not just diabetic? So, so yeah, so fatty liver was the next big population. And then we realized that, you know, if someone can easily just have their body maintain their weight, they're rare. They're the exception. 
you know, most of us now have some version of early buildup of triglyceride. And this is a way to reverse that and, you know, drop those inches and feel better and get your metabolism back online again. Mm. And then in your clinical experience, how have people gone then reintroducing whole food eating um, and not putting back on the weight or not going back into diabetes? Is it a long-term success that you've noticed? Um, as a generalization, very much so. And yeah, anyone could just do soda and fries and overdo it. That's totally possible. But most people that listen to you or me, they already have a lot of sense about you know eating vegetables and not eating fried foods. And they already have a lot of reasonable food rules that they're living by. But those things don't always work in the past. So yeah, so people can shift in ways to where a reasonably healthy diet can work again. Yeah, that's, that's the coolest part of all of it. They can say, yeah, I used to eat this way before, but my weight would never budge. And now I'm, I'm eating like I did before. I'm not exercising anymore, but I've maintained these pounds that I've lost and I'm still dropping a few more. So that's, that's the coolest part. Amazing. And really, I mean, when we connect to what the weight loss feels like it's, and we take away the societal appreciation for what a perfect body looks like. I think it's really important that we do this for us and the yeah. feeling that you get feeling your, your happy weight. I call it a happy weight. Um, well, yeah. And there's a, there's, a, there's like a pride, there's a social acceptance and, and sure that's valid, but pushing that aside for a moment, you talked about just chronic inflammation and how devastating that can be. And many things drive that, but amongst the top offenders, there are cells called adipokines and they are specialized cytokines that are made from certain fat cells. And it turns out they're amongst the body's largest drivers of inflammation. You know, one example that we recently uncovered was that we thought for a long time that those that had arthritis, their joints were sore. I'm sorry, that obesity could tie to arthritis. And we thought the connection was their joints were sore because they were carrying extra weight. And it made a lot of sense. If you got, you know, 30 more pounds, you're straining your knees that much more every day but some pretty elegant studies were able to look at the pressure inside the joints and to measure the circulating level of inflammatory chemicals. And what they found is that, yes, obesity drives arthritis, but the weight component is completely irrelevant. The weight component has no effects whatsoever. It's completely an inflammatory effect. So yeah, so those few extra pounds in the wrong place, they can be amongst the body's biggest drivers of inflammation. And that then affects just almost any possible symptom. Mm. And so do those people end up in a bit of a catch-22 because the weight is causing the inflammation and then you get more inflamed, say, when you raise your cortisol and do exercise. And then so sometimes people exercise and they put on more weight. How yeah. do people navigate their way out of that? So that's an awesome question. And something that I iterated through with that program too over the years um, I'm a fan of exercise. I think it's the fountain of youth. I think it's one of the best things we can do with our time, but it doesn't work for weight loss. It's just not an effective tool for weight loss for most people. And so during that reset phase, I encourage some gentle movement, but pretty minimal exercise. Most people exercise less than they would on a regular basis per the guidelines. It's not much because exactly what you said, exercise, it's, it's a good stress as long as we're not doing way more, way more than we can tolerate. But during times of weight loss, yeah, if you're training hard, your body is just, there's no way you'll not be in a heightened stress response. And that's, you're not benefiting from exercise. You'll only lose muscle mass. So, so yeah, I encourage just as much activity to keep your blood moving and keep your muscles engaged, but very, very little during the active phase of weight loss. Mm -hmm. 
Amazing. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, okay. So I want to talk about supplementation because I think you have some really useful takes on, on things, especially watching the world uh, respond to a pandemic. It's been really interesting how, you know, there's one paper on one vitamin and then you see it sell out of iHerb in a day when one doctor mentions it. It's crazy. <laughs> and there's a lot of self-supplementation going. And I understand why, because often we feel jaded. Maybe you can't afford to go see integrative doctors and naturopaths and, uh, and you want to do something. And so you just try and go for the most trusted source and you do a bit of that. Um, what, how can we more healthily incorporate supplementation and what does that look like in terms of uh, what we could maybe safely do ourselves versus what you need to be under guidance for? Yeah, awesome question. You know, and I think there's a false dichotomy that almost always comes up with people think, oh, you should get everything from a healthy diet and you shouldn't take supplements. And, you know, it, it's really not an either or, you know, we, we do need a healthy diet. <laughs> and there are some gaps that still exist, you know, vitamin D being one of the clearest examples of that. So supplementation is reasonable. The net data about the effects of multivitamins on populations are positive. So what I encourage for people is uh, multivitamins are a good idea. One of the biggest pitfalls about them in general is iodine. We can talk more about that. But in general, it's healthy to have a base level of multivitamin, uh, oftentimes calcium, magnesium, perhaps some essential fats. Past that point, however, anything else should be for a very specific reason and for a chosen time frame. You know, I think a pitfall that I see is that there's always something that seems like it could be a good idea, and people end up getting just a long list of pills. You know, we we mentioned before about the like events we do here and the retreat participants, one, one time I averaged the number of pills people were taking when they first came to visit us. And the number was 26 different supplements. Ooh, wow. So that was the average. Mm. But <laughs> that's, isn't that's... that like, okay, so it makes me think of some of the documentaries where you see people on a bazillion different meds. And if you pair it right back to the first med they took, that was often the reason they had to incorporate the next one because of a side effect and then had to. So are we doing the same thing sometimes with supplements where we're jacking up a level of one thing, it's putting something else out of balance, then you got to take another thing. Could that be why these people were taking 26 a day? Um, it could. I think a lot of them are just, you know, trying to find multiple things to solve the same concern that the first one may not have or just, just being exposed to a lot of marketing messages. But it's kind of odd. Uh, we think a lot about emergent properties. So for example, <clears throat> a molecule of water, it's not wet. There's no such thing at that level. But a lot of them, now they're wet. There's these properties that groups have that individuals don't have. And so, yeah, so a large number or like, you know, like a recipe, like, like this turmeric by itself might not be the tastiest thing in the world, but, you know, if you make it one to your family's curries you talked about, that's a whole different emergent property, right? Yeah. It would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's it's true with supplements. Like a big group of them can act in ways that you would never predict from the individual members. So 20% of people that go to the emergency rooms and are diagnosed with acute liver injury in the U.S., 20% of them are from taking a lot of supplements. You know, it's a it's a huge thing. So yeah, I would I would argue uh, multivitamins are appropriate. Uh, iodine can be a big pitfall that they contain, thing to work around. Uh, and why is iodine a pitfall? 
Boy, big story. We could talk along as much as you'd like on this. But oh, we might need a part two. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually a docu-series I'm putting out shortly about that. Oh, great. A new book coming out that's all about it. But it turns out that we need iodine for our thyroid. No debate about that. But of all nutrients, it's just, it's different in so many ways. You know, most nutrients have many jobs in many parts of your body. And there's a point at where you could get too little, but there's a pretty generous gap between too little and toxic. You've got a lot of leeway to where if you're getting enough, you're probably going to be okay. And you're probably not going to easily get toxic. And iodine, there's this relationship to where too little, we see more thyroid disease. And of course, too much, we see more thyroid disease. But the bizarre thing is that too little and too much are just ridiculously close together. Like it's just insane how close together they are. And as our food has gotten processed in different ways, we're exposed to more of it now than we were even in the recent past. Right. So uh, in 20, I'm sorry, 1991, the World Health Organization saw that 142 nations were categorized as severely iodine deficient. It was a big problem. By 2014, that number of nations was reduced to zero. But we now have 52 nations that they've categorized as being at risk for thyroid disease from iodine excess. Wow. And is that because of fortification in packaged foods? um, Yes. So it's fortified in salt. Uh, Also, there's a lot more fed to dairy cattle. There's also a lot that ends up in baked goods. And then we've got iodine now in cosmetics in high amounts, which is unexpected. And the supplements are not well regulated. But yeah, we map out these elevated amounts of iodine and it maps out exactly onto the years in which thyroid disease started going up. Um, Denmark. So they started fortifying their salt with iodine in the year 2000. And they knew that most nations that did would unmask a lot of hidden thyroid disease. So they did it very carefully. They didn't overdo it. And they carefully watched populations to see how thyroid disease changed. Don't you love those Northern Europeans? They're so considered. (laughs) (laughs) So they've got centralized centralized Mm. medicine and Mm. socialized medicine. So they can, with a keystroke, they can see how many scripts have been written for thyroid meds, you know, how many diagnoses have been made, how many procedures have been done. And yeah, for 16 years that they tracked it, they saw about an annual increase of 50% thyroid disease of all types each year after fortifying. And they did it perfectly. Mm. So yeah, that's just one example. And the iodine that you paint on your skin where it's said that your body will take what it needs, is that true? You want to do a fun myth busting? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> They did it. They did a really big study on that. And mm-hmm. it seems plausible enough. You know, you put it on your skin. If you need it, you'd soak it up. If you don't need it, wouldn't soak it up. And so, yeah, that was researched. And they had three different types of skin they used. So one skin was on those that had good thyroid function. One type of skin was on those that had very poor thyroid function. And the thought was, yeah, maybe those that had poor thyroid function, maybe some of them were iodine deficient. Maybe they need more of it. Well, the third group, they were dead. It was cadaver skin. <laughs> Wow. What they saw was amongst those three groups, the difference of iodine absorption was completely random. So yeah, so when you put iodine in your skin, 80% of it absorbs into the air. A lot of it does absorb, you know, 20%. And at a microgram level, that can be a lot of iodine. So yeah, so 20% does absorb, but how you absorb that doesn't matter if your thyroid's working well or bad, or if you're high or low in iodine, or if you're even alive or dead, that doesn't Mm. change it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh by the way that study was done in 1932 oh we answered that a long time ago (laughs) so we've known this all along so it literally is just 
some people believe the marketing, others don't. And it's simple as that. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so do you recommend people uh, get their iodine checked when they're doing some routine tests? Yeah, really good question. Um, There's a lot of iodine tests and by and large, they're, they're good tools to gauge how much iodine is in a population. So if you're checking 500 people, yeah, you can say if this population has too little, too much, about right. But the problem is any one reading can fluctuate so much that in the population, it doesn't matter. But for any one person, it can make it next to meaningless. You know, if one person tests themselves like 500 times, yeah, but that's not practical. So there are now recently available some tests that look at iodine and they calculate that against creatinine. So your kidneys release creatinine and based on exactly how they do that, that can make the iodine fluctuations predictable. So there's one narrow type of test that calculates urinary iodine to creatinine ratios, and those are meaningful for individuals. But all the other urinary tests, blood tests, skin tests, they're, they're just not useful for individuals. Okay. So that's one less thing to buy. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, is, is then the... Um, because I just want to feel like we really understand this rather than bringing it up and then everybody going, so, but what about, so what are some of the clues then that our iodine's out of whack? Is it as simple as what's happening with our thyroid? That's one of the, one of the biggest ones. Yeah. And as far as getting too little, that's almost never a concern in the modern world. Now I say almost never, I have seen people that were consuming nothing but raw cruciferous vegetables. And I mean nothing but like three pounds of blended broccoli per day and no other food. So I have seen people be iodine deficient in those cases, but barring that, it just doesn't happen. So yeah, but you can easily get too much. And with thyroid disease, whether it's hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, Graves disease, subclinical hypothyroidism, thyroid cancers, they're by and large diseases of excess. And it's not intuitive because we need the iodine but the problem is we can easily get too much and it damages the thyroid at excess. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if there's something going on with the thyroid, have a look with your practitioner at iodine yeah. and possible role. Good. Yeah. And stay um, tuned for the thyroid reset diet. That'll be the yes. Of it. <laughs> so when is it coming out? That'll be January. You got okay. So we don't to have go. too long to go. Not too long. <laughs> no. And uh, what I, I would love to know what made you feel like, you know, you've helped everybody with their metabolism. Uh, what made you feel like this book needed to be written? Was it about the misunderstanding around iodine? Was it bigger than that? Yeah. I've, I've written past thyroid books and the information that I'm sharing, it just didn't exist then. You know, I, for a long time, I guess since about 2004, it's been popular in some parts of natural medicine to give mega doses of iodine. And I've known about that and those dangers have been very clear for a long time, but past that, most of people, including myself just figured, well, you know, don't overdose on it. But other than that, it's probably not all that relevant. And, but now, so the big paper that defined Hashimoto's disease, the century on that paper passed in about 2007 and lots of researchers said, well, if Dr. Hiroko Hashimoto came back today, what do we have to show for the last hundred years? And all these big surveys have come out of thyroid patients saying that, yeah, they're not doing well, that we're not doing a good job in the conventional world. So it's inspired new research. And some of that is evaluations of existing data. And some of that is just brand new research. So one big study that was done, they took a group of people that had pretty significant hypothyroidism. 
And for six weeks, they did only one intervention and they had them on a very low iodine diet. There was no medications, there was nothing else done. At the end of six weeks, 78.3% of the participants were completely free of thyroid disease. And of, the, of those that were not, of the few that weren't, by and large, either they didn't manage to fully avoid the iodine, you know, they, they did check their iodine levels and they were still too high, or they just weren't there yet. They were like, they had a TSH score of 200 and it came down to 30, you know? So those that weren't yet normal were either on their way or they didn't actually manage to hit the guidelines. So it's incredibly effective. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to that book coming out <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and don't you hate long lead times? Uh, it's like I'm <laughs> writing my book at the moment and going to be up to the draft and handing it in September, I think for the second one. And then okay. we have to wait till August next year which is crazy, but you know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> but um, something I wanted to finish with because we have talked about food quite a bit and, yeah. uh, and it is a constant source of curiosity for people and the backflipping that happens in uh, discussions around food, what's, what's working, what's not. Is there a food that you've ever thought, ah, oh, that's bad. I can't eat that. And then, you've gone, why, why did I, you know, <laughs> how was I so narrow-minded on that subject as a doctor? Is, can you confess something that you've ever experienced like oh, that? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, mm. there's, that's the thing is there's none of these things that I've not fallen for. Thankfully, mm -hmm. thankfully, I really started a lot of this stuff when I was 12. And so a lot of my biggest pitfalls happened when I was a young adult, like uh, 18 to 25 or so. That's why when I did the most extreme dietary, uh, dietary changes, I guess. And yeah, I've tried every, at the time, at least all the fad diets that existed then all the iterations of that and all the various foods being bad. And, you know, one of the toughest things, there was the a Gerson protocol that was done that was nothing but raw liver and raw collard greens. So I did that for two weeks. I blended raw liver and raw collard greens. And wow. That's dedication. <laughs> I can eat collard greens, but it's a little struggle. And that's like one of the only foods that I have a hard time with. <laughs> it's a painful time in your past. <laughs> well, and, and there's a cycle to where I, I vividly have seen this cycle occur in me when I did those things over and over and over again to where there's this long discussion about why this one thing is evil for you and why this is bad for you and why all the negative things that happen in your health are because of that. And I often didn't have enough context to, to see through some of those arguments. And so they made sense. And I, I would believe it like, oh, this is, this is what I've been waiting for. This is finally it. This is now all these problems explained. And I would dive into it. And almost inevitably, for a few weeks, I would be reaping these benefits. And whether or not I was just on less processed food or less total food, or maybe it was a psychological, however, but I would see initial benefit. And then things would drop. Then I would start feeling more symptoms come back and even more weakness and fatigue. And, you know, I was getting malnourished and, but I saw that cycle happen so many times. And oftentimes the, the mindset was at the first signs of it not working, the thought wasn't, is this a bad approach? The thought is, oh, what am I doing wrong? Am I mm. not doing this hard enough? Yeah, you know, exactly. I, exactly what we were talking about before. Yeah. yeah maybe it's your problem. You're the bad person. Yeah. Maybe I know, maybe it's not low carb. Maybe I've got to go keto. Maybe I got to take it the next step. You know, maybe it's all these foods to cut out. And and same thing, there'd be some, maybe some new additional benefits that would emerge for whatever reason, but then they wouldn't last. So 
yeah, I've, I've written that thing so many times. <laughs> mm. And thank you for being uh, vulnerable enough to share that because I think a lot of us are going to continue to feel a sense of shame around things not working for us that we might try until everybody just admits we're all just trying, you know, whoever we are. There was one point are. I remember in which I was in my uh, undergraduate training and I had a, it was about two and a half miles to get to my college. I didn't own a car at the time, so I was walking and I was still doing some running then. I was probably, you know, five, 10 miles a day. And after all these various tests and various ways in which I thought I'd restrict food further to be healthy, I was down to like one small meal a day of raw foods and nothing else. And that, that two and a half mile one-way walk to school, that was Northern Minnesota wintertime. It's like 20, 30, 40 below. And yeah, I was running and I was just digging myself into a pit. You know, I was so psychologically off and unstable and exhausted and unhappy and unhealthy. And, and, and in the moment, I was sure that there was something bad I was reacting to in my diet, that I had to cut something out further. That was some of the first impressions. And somehow or other, I mean, now I've moved back on it and see how ridiculous it was. But in the moment, I thought, no, I've, I've got to go further with this. So yeah, it's a tough thing. Yeah, and it's um, hopefully us talking about that today is going to help a few people go, oh, crap, that's where I am. <laughs> you know, and, that you know, hard truths help us carve new paths. I'm a big believer in that. So, yeah. so thank you for sharing that personal experience. Um, Alan, to finish, if there was one thing we could do to uh, to... I mean, I don't want to say to reset our metabolisms. That's that's not great. But to nourish a healthy metabolic response that we could start this week, what's your favorite? Boy, healthy metabolic response. So the, the reset process is great. It's all structured. There's a lot of ideas for general maintenance and keeping that healthy. I think, um, I don't know, one that there's many I can think of that your listeners probably heard quite a bit. And I'd rather avoid those. But one thing that I think often gets confused is just uh, dietary protein status. You know, so we, we, we won't get protein deficient easily. And that, that, that's, that's a given. Unless we're malnourished and just not getting enough food in general, we'll get enough protein. We won't run out of it. But there's a threshold that helps us hold on to lean body mass and a threshold that we can subsist just fine on, but we tap into our muscles on a daily basis. So yeah, so that, that's one thing I would think about is, as far as maintaining a good metabolism. And we think about our, our body size, uh, our, our, our body weight, you know, and then our body composition. So whatever your, whatever your muscle mass is, so if, we, if, we know your, if you know your body fat, you can check that by various devices. But if you know your approximate body fat, you subtract that out. So if a, if a woman's 140 pounds, say 25% body fat, well, that's going to be what? Um, 35 pounds of body fat. So pull that out. So she's got about 105 pounds of lean body mass. So in terms of U.S. units, at least, that 105 pounds of lean body mass, she'll do well to get about that many grams of protein per day, you know, somewhere around 100, give or take 10% or so. So yeah, 90, 110 a day, and ideally spread out throughout the day. But that's, that's commonly missed. And if you look at the average person in their 70s or their 80s, they, they get this big barrel-like trunk and they get, you know, guys get bird legs. You know, we, we lose our extremity muscles. And that's where our metabolism goes down. And that's where we get the risk for all types of infectious response and chronic diseases. So yeah, so holding on to that, that lean body mass is really critical. And mm. actually the 
The dietary protein, exercise is huge. That's number two. The dietary protein is bigger than exercise for holding on to the lean body mass. Mm. And that's, and that's the not, first and that's time not, I've... Sorry, no, you finish. I was going to say, well, that, that's, not, that's not meat per se. That's dietary protein. So plant mm. proteins are awesome. But yeah, you need a certain amount to maintain muscles. And it's not about avoiding deficiency. That's easy to do. Mm. And do you feel that getting that from a mix of plants and animal products is, tends to be what works for most people? Yeah. So animal products, they have higher amounts of certain amino acids that are rate limiting, like leucine or isoleucine or valine. And then plant products have so many benefits in various ways of the phytonutrients, the high varieties of fibers that they contain. So a mixture, a mixture is awesome that way. Mm. And that was the first time I've ever heard the removal of the percentage of body fat in pounds before you calculate your protein. Um, So is, is that because you should calculate your daily protein approximately based on your lean body mass? Well, so if someone say the example, they had a, a lot, very little lean body mass per their size, they wouldn't need all that much protein and then they could easily get too much. And if you're targeting the, the lean body mass you want to hold on onto, then that's where you can end up more easily. But I've seen papers showing that, yeah, if you change dietary protein, one group, one paper looked at people who were overfed, they were all given an extra thousand calories per day. And one group was on about like 7% protein. One was about 15, one was about 25. So seven is not uncommon for a, a exclusively plant diet. And 15 is not uncommon for some modern diet. 25 takes a little bit of forethought. It doesn't, so you don't really stumble into that. But because everyone was overfed, everyone gained weight. And the group on the standard diet gained about 12 pounds. And of that 12 pounds, like eight of it was fat. And uh, I'm sorry, no, like, like 10 of it was fat and two was muscle tissue. So those on the lowest protein, they gained weight too, but they gained about 13 pounds total and they gained about uh, 14, I'm sorry, 15 pounds of body fat which means they lost muscle as they were gaining fat. And then the group on the 25% protein, they gained the least weight, they gained like eight pounds, but they gained six pounds of muscle mass. Okay. And they, they might not have looked worse from it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a bigger variable than almost any other single variable. Mm, fascinating and so powerful to hone in on that. Um, I feel like every time you mention a study, I then want to ask 5 billion questions. So (laughs) this will definitely shape into a part two when that fabulous book comes out next year, I think. But thank you so much for your time, uh, for really going deep into uh, some of the key aspects of um, metabolic resetting so that people really understand what's at play. Uh, I certainly feel like I understand everything uh, much more clearly. And I want to thank you for your time. It was excellent chatting to you today. Now you had some, it was my pleasure. You had some really insightful questions. You're obviously very knowledgeable and yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Look forward to talking again. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and, of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox Life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Lotox 
Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.